Welcome to episode 120 with my guest, uh, listener Louise, who lives with the Asperger's. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code HAPPY. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, uh, an hour or two about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there and uh, browse. Finger the merchandise. Be a looky-loo. Take some of the surveys. Join the forum. Donate if you feel like it. Um... And speaking of uh, donating, my soul was donated. Boy, is that a horrible, horrible segue. Uh, I just am, I am so high from the Blackhawks winning the Stanley Cup uh, a couple of nights ago that um, I may have to reset my sobriety date. I am just, I know I shouldn't be that excited by something that really, uh, has nothing actually to do with my life, but it feels like it really does. It, fe- it felt like I was there actually participating, and I don't even want to know how sick and deep that goes, but uh, very exciting, very exciting. Um, before we get to the conversation with Louise, oh, um, she sent me an email, and she wanted to clarify something. She said... Um, she, that she re- had referred to herself um, in her earlier years as morbidly obese, and she said that that's really not accurate. It was more just obese, and so she wanted to uh, clarify that, so I'm passing that on. What if you guys just turned it off? Well, I have no interest in listening to anybody that's not morbidly obese. I want to kick it off with an email I got from a listener named Ray, and uh female, and she writes, I went to my bipolar group today. I guess I didn't have a real reason. I want to keep going even though nothing is technically wrong at the moment. I think I have PTSD after being depressed for 16 years and feeling like no one really got it. I thought about you because you say that you sometimes go to support groups just to give people advice. In a weird way, it was helpful to sit there and listen to problems that used to be crippling to me and now are still relevant but on a much smaller scale. I gave advice to people. I tried to hang back and not monopolize, but I talked a fair amount. Multiple people told me I had great advice, which I didn't expect to hear, but it was nice. I spoke because I felt moved to. I wanted to help other people get over their problems if I can. In a way, it was a nice confidence booster. These people really do seem like my people. I think it's hard for normies to understand just how much effort it takes to do the bare minimum. Now that I'm much stabler, I can appreciate how sensitive this illness has made me and how much easier it is to face adversity when you've hit rock bottom. I feel like this group keeps me grounded. In some senses, misery loves company really applies. It's even nice that people recognize me. What's nice is that people want you to be emotionally raw and they want you to confess. How many other places are like that? You don't have to worry about appearing weak. People aren't there to judge you. You don't have to hide. You can be real. So often I felt like I had to keep it together and it might hurt people if I told them how I felt or make them feel overly concerned about me. I felt I had to hide my feelings if I wanted to be considerate. I have a therapist and a support family, a supportive family, but there's something special about a group of strangers, peers, 
in this case the label bipolar or depressed, actually can bring people closer together. Thank you for sharing that, Ray. You know how I love to get on my soapbox about support groups. Well, they saved my fucking life. So I um and if you, and if if you try one and it's not clicking for you, try try another one because there are some out there that are you know, just bitch sessions and there's no recovery in them at all. Um, but there are some amazing ones that have a lot of recovery in there. And uh, people like Ray that are, you know, maybe on the other side of an issue a little bit now and, and have some perspective and some some support to, uh, to give. That's why they call it a support group. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself um, Compressed Air. He's straight in his 20s. He writes, I will be 30 in 30 days. That scares me to death. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thought that I will grow old and friendless. Very simple, and it's frightening. Deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, it took an affair for me to realize how mentally abusive my 10-year relationship was. It shames me to think that it took such an act on my part to realize how abusive the relationship was. I ended it a few months later. I never told her or anyone what fucked with my head is that not the act of the affair, but that it took something like that for me to see what a hole I had been in. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you to be bound and blindfolded, losing all control over the situation. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He writes, I did. She never fulfilled it and would bring it up in a mocking or humiliating manner. Yeah, I would say that definitely qualifies as an abusive relationship. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Yes, they make me feel alone because I do not believe I will ever have someone to share them with. Um, I, I would leave that door open because I think sometimes if we close that in our heads, um, maybe then we give off the energy of leave me alone. And I don't know, that's just a thought of mine. And then I love this comment that he that he has. And he comments to make the podcast better. He says, filling this out uh, makes me finally, made me finally de- decide to seek counseling. There is no compliment I would rather get than that. Though that is my favorite thing to read. This is also from the Shame and Secrets uh, survey. And this was filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Michael, the fuck kind of a name is that? He is uh, he's gay, he's in his 30, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And the reason I wanted to read this was, um, we get these sometimes. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. And then he's, he writes, my father exposed me to sexually explicit material and was constantly talking about sex in front of me when I was growing up. He would ask me about every woman we passed on the street and tell me what he'd like to do to her. I was just coming to realize I was gay, so I felt a lot of shame. When I was seven, he used to strip me naked and lay me on the floor of the living room to check and see what my genitals and the glands around them looked like. He was terrified he had AIDS and he thought he could figure it out from looking and touching his prepubescent son. It hurt physically and I'm not sure how it affected me emotionally. I'm in my early 30s and have never had a relationship. I've only had sex one time. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts, I think about dying. I don't like pain, but when I think about dying, I feel warmth and relief. I think about God turning me into stone and throwing me into the middle of the lake where I had some of the only happy memories of my childhood. Um, 
Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was 14 years old, I started masturbating with my 40-year-old uncle, my mom's brother. This went on for a few weeks, and it ended up with me performing oral sex on him. I was so ashamed that I felt damned. It only stopped bothering me as much a couple of years ago when I talked to my therapist about it. Um, wow. You know, I. the wow is that you wouldn't that you would even wonder if that was sexual abuse, what your father did to you. That is so clearly sexual abuse and so incredibly abusive. Um, I, I don't care what guys he was doing that underneath, uh, you know. And for one, what a f- fucking flimsy, you know, excuse to to molest you. It, it, it just... Um, I hope you're talking to your therapist about this. And if your therapist is not telling you that that was abuse, find another fucking therapist. But I have the feeling, I just wonder why you would put that as, I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse, if you've t- shared that with your therapist already. But you know, what the, what the fuck am I talking about? I still go back and forth on whether or not I can call what happened to me sexual abuse. So look at me judging you. Hmm? Look at me Watching you, watching me, judging you. That's my fantasy. (laughs) I'm sending you a big hug, Michael. This is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bastet. She is uh, bisexual. She writes, I don't really know. I don't know if I like men or if I just like their approval. Um, She's in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts, I lie to everyone. That's the only thing I've always known how to do. In my most alone moments, I worry that I don't know the truth anymore, that I'm a fabulous waterfall of self-constructed lies. Deepest, darkest secrets, I don't know what's real. I worry that I have such a deep life within myself that I'm not sure what happened and what I convinced myself of in order to excuse why I'm such a failure as a human being, that I'm still hoping someone is going to come along and rescue me. I I really feel for you because I know what it is like to question your integrity and it's a scare you feel untethered you feel like you're floating in space and um I would encourage you to connect to people cuz I think isolating is just going to exacerbate that um we're just going to skip uh Skip over the sexual fantasy stuff. I feel like um, maybe I'm reading too much of that stuff on the on the podcast lately. Um, I'd like your guys' uh, opinion on that. It's just turning into too much of uh, too much sex and sex talk. Um, to the question, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She says it makes me realize how fucked I am from my childhood of no boundaries or privacy. I don't feel that I'm a bad person, but it does make me realize how specific all of this is and it makes me feel bad for my ex-husband because he probably had similarly weird thoughts he didn't feel he could talk about. We should all admit how fucked we are and then just deal with it, I guess. Um, Well, I guess I should then read her sexual fantasy because she just referenced it. Um, She writes, um, being on display, not being allowed to orgasm. If I do, it means the person who achieved it can do what they want. And then suggestions to make the podcast better. Stop beating yourself up, Paul. We like you flawed. Perfect, Paul. Boring. Knock it off and be human. Thank you for that, Bastet. And I would say, right back at you. 
Cut yourself a little slack, huh? This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Ugg. <laughs> you gotta love that. You know this is just going to be brimming with self-confidence. He's straight, he's in his 20s, and what do you like or dislike about your body? I'm in my mid-20s and fully bald. I feel like I have a tiny, ugly penis, five inches. I'm afraid I won't be able to be good at sex. Only had sex two times because of compulsive masturbation and slash porn for so long. I feel like I have a nice face and eyebrows and good height-weight proportion. Well, you know, I think um, the, the compulsive masturbating and porn is certainly something to be to to take a look at and to maybe talk to somebody about because I think it can make it difficult for us to connect to other people because you know fantasy can can warp us it can really warp us not forever but it can I think temporarily warp us um this is also from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself mental mel she is straight in her 40s was raised in a dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed that I think if I die before my husband, he will find someone else and be much happier than he is now with me. And he will wonder how he could have stayed with me so long. I use my mental illness as an excuse for not getting a new job. I relocated for my husband's work and just don't want to. I'm a bad person and a criminal for avoiding my financial and tax responsibilities. I'm a disappointment to my family because I no longer have a career. Deepest, darkest secrets, I have seven years of unfiled and unpaid taxes. When I was in fifth grade, I took my dad's baseball card collection and gave the best cards away to the boys in our, quote, group. Some of them have sold for $80,000 or more in the past 15 years. I have never told anyone, and I can't look at or listen to media stories about baseball cards or Ty Cobb, Joe Jackson, etc. I have huge guilt and anxiety about depriving my parents of so much retirement income, and I'm ashamed that I used the cards to buy friendship with boys in fifth grade. How lame and insecure is that? You were a kid. You were a kid, you know? And kids do impulsive things, and I think it's time that you, you forgave yourself. Um, I remember trading. I had like one of the original um, Beatles, uh, the Meet the Beatles albums, and um, I traded it when I was like, I don't know, in fifth grade for like a beat up monkeys record. And years later, I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? And I started getting pissed at myself, and then I realized, yeah, I was in fucking fourth grade. It seems like a good idea to a fourth grader. Um, but you're in fifth grade. You should have known better. Kidding. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feeling? feeling? <laughs> Slow down, Paul. Slow the fuck down. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? That I need to be in control so much that I don't allow myself any fantasies that might make me vulnerable, seem weird to my husband, and or expose me to ridicule. I deny myself real intimacy, and that is not what I want. Um, well, I guess now I should also read your fantasy because it doesn't make sense. Maybe I shouldn't, if I'm not going to read the fantasy, I shouldn't read that question about how these thoughts make you feel. She writes, my sexual fantasies are uh, more about sensations than specific people, physical types, or gender. I'm afraid to exp explore 
a more detailed fantasy life and risk loss of control. I read erotic stories and use someone else's ideas. I don't understand what what is shaming about any of that stuff. And then um, this last thing I want to read was just an email I got from uh, a listener, Rob, from Canada. And uh, this was just a little experience that he had. Uh, he was um, walking around with his headphones on and... Um, it was the morning, and he writes, uh, I walked by my neighbors and noticed their boat trailer was missing the boat. There was a time when I was so competitive that him having a nice boat before me made me both jealous and bitter. This morning, however, I saw the empty trailer, imagined him and his family having happy times on the water, and it just made me very happy for them. And I smiled. No jealousy, no bitterness, just genuine happiness for them. And that moment of, hey, that's a neat thought, Pride that my years of therapy have paid off and made me a better person, at least in that way. And I continued my walk with an extra spring in my step. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% of them. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Louise, and that's a, a pseudonym we're going to use so that she can she can speak more freely. Um, we had exchanged a, a couple of emails back and forth. You gave me kind of the broad strokes of some of the stuff that you've um, experienced in your life. And the thing that I found interesting, too, is that you're in your uh, first year of working towards uh, being a therapist, so you you were saying that you're still kind of in the in the academic part of it, yes. and, and that's not the reason I wanted to have you on. I don't want your expertise, you know, as a one year student. Oh no, in, yeah. in working towards a thera- being a therapist, um, but I I find that to be kind of indicative of somebody's desire to be a seeker, and I find people that are constantly seeking to be the best the best guests no oh, thank you i definitely uh, i've been in therapy myself uh since i was pretty young uh from social things and that really got me started trying to figure out more about how i worked and why certain patterns kept resurfacing and all of that and you're 26 26 yeah and what what were the reasons that you went to therapy when you were a kid uh we moved a couple of times when I was younger, and when we ended up uh, in Texas, I didn't make any friends. Uh, I was really withdrawn, and I didn't have any interest in making friends, and there'd always been a little bit of a withdrawnness, but as other kids were starting to have friendships and do stuff together, playdates and stuff, and I wasn't doing that, my parents started to get worried, and they would take me, they took me to a few different people uh, from probably around 11 to 
Well, I'm I'm in therapy now. All counseling students are really strongly advised to do it. Um, Wouldn't it be funny if somebody said, I'd prefer not to, I don't really believe in therapy? Yeah, I've been getting that all the time from people. It's really, it's shocking how many people are really anti-therapy. Someone last night was You're talking about people outside the program. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, that would be really disturbing. (laughs) Uh, But it was mostly social, but I think there was also a lot of depression at that point and anxiety, and it I was always good at school. I always got straight A's, um, but the pressure would kind of get to me. I would be really well behaved at school if quiet, but then when I got home, I was just kind of nervous and would stay up all night worrying. One of the first counselors I went to see was a school counselor uh, because I told my mom I had so much homework I wanted to kill myself in third grade, and they, she wrote it in a note to my teacher and she kind of meant it in a joking way but they didn't take it that way so that that was one of the first therapists I saw and I think from there I got referred to someone outside of the school system and then uh, got into a lot of medications off-label was the the pressure to succeed as a student was that self-imposed or was that kind of from your parents or what, what do you think that that was about? They definitely strongly value academics, but they never really cared that much about grades. Every once in a while, my dad would look at my report card, and if something was like uh, a B, he would say, oh, are you going to work on that a little bit? But there wasn't a whole lot of pressure. They weren't really up in my business about my grades all the time. Did you feel Um, like there was, uh, that like they weren't invested in you and your happiness? Were they interested in you? Was there feeling like you wanted more of their attention? My my mom quit. Uh, she was a, an adjunct professor and had a, a really long, great career. But uh, when she had me, she gave it up kind of when she realized uh, I didn't take very well to daycare and really put everything kind of into spending time with me and helping me. I know I would be dead <laughs> if she hadn't done that. Um, and my dad has worked a lot. When she quit her job, he had to take a more demanding job that involved traveling a lot. And even though he did, he was gone a lot, he tried to make it very clear that he cared a lot and would do things like coach my basketball team and stuff like that. He could be a little bit intense about grades, but I think his dad was kind of like that, like very, you know, thought that you show love by pushing people and he's, neither one of them are very pushy. They're, they're pretty good about being there, but not being overbearing. Although uh, when I was a teenager, it was a little bit hard for them to ease up with uh, something like Asperger's um, and being kind of naive. They could just see kind of the troubles that lay ahead Mm -hmm. (laughs) and wanted to protect me from that but you just can't you can't kind of keep your kids how how you have asperger's yes and how do you go how do you find out that you have asperger's um i didn't find out until i was uh 17 uh i went to all these therapists probably over the course of my life i've seen at least 10 therapists or psychologists and um no, no they thought it was social anxiety or something like that but I didn't really feel that anxious. I just didn't have a strong interest in socializing. But uh, Asperger's only really became known. I think it started to 
become uh, more well known in the 80s in the U.S. Um, so no one, none of the doctors I saw, I think, even were really aware of it at the time. And it wasn't until I had these stomach problems uh, that no physical stuff seemed to help. And I tried every specialist in my area and finally had to go see someone uh, in another state, a specialist. Like, uh, he's one of, I think, a handful in the whole world that deals with stress-related digestive problems. And he was actually the one that diagnosed me with it. And I had to do a six-week cognitive behavioral program to get my stomach stuff to calm down. It was was life-threatening at that point. Like, I was in the emergency room several times, and the last time... Ulcers or...? um, I have Barrett's esophagus from acid reflux. I have stomach cells in my throat. They said that's something that people usually get after they're 40, and I had it when I was 16 from stress. I I only threw up a few times from anxiety, but just all of a sudden I would feel this rush and throw up. Uh, And then I also had colon issues, uh, which was great at around 16 or 17 to be like almost dying from constipation. (laughs) That was a lot of fun. Barium enemas and all that stuff in the hospital. Uh, and the last time I checked into the hospital, they had they put a tube down my throat, like through my nose and down my throat, and G tube, and were just pumping laxatives into me for three days straight, and I couldn't eat or drink anything, and they told me that my intestines might perforate, and uh, I would die of septicemia possibly. Like it was very, it was really scary at that point. I think I got the Asperger's diagnosis a little bit before that hospitalization, and he said I'd have to leave school. It was my senior year, and I didn't want to leave. Uh, And I said, no, wait, I'll be fine. And then I had that incident, and that was so scary. I said, okay, I'll take time off of school and go deal with this. I wanted to graduate early and just get school over with, but that kind of put everything back. What What are the hallmarks of Asperger's? Uh, there are three main ones that are in the the DSM-4. They're actually getting rid of the diagnosis in the DSM-5. If you were diagnosed under the DSM-4, uh, you're kind of grandfathered in, but they won't be using it anymore. But it's basically social issues, communication problems, and uh, issues with cognitive flexibility. And there can also be uh, sensory issues as well. Those are really common and a tendency to have very narrow interests and kind of have repetitive rituals and mm-hmm. patterns, which I definitely used to have more. I have them a little bit now, but generally it gets better as people get older. And mine's pretty mild. I mean, it's still there, but not... Is it something yeah. that can be eased? The the uh, The symptoms, the negative symptoms of it can be eased through some type of work that you do or things that you practice every day? Definitely the, the exercise is a huge one. Um, especially heavy weights are very calming and are supposed to be helpful with aggressive behavior. And I just, I really like it. I feel like I know you do the hockey and I feel like mm-hmm. gardening is sort of that where I just go out and hack at the ground and lug around hundreds of pounds of dirt and just uh, work out all my frustrations on it and then I feel a lot better. But if I don't do that or lift weights or do something all the time, it I definitely start to feel 
more uncomfortable, I think, in my skin and that those things kind of tend to arise when that happens. Is it fair to say that people with Asperger's find stimuli that the average person wouldn't have a problem with? It feels overwhelming? Definitely. That's a big sensory. Um, the sensory stuff is pretty big and things like light are kind of hard for me. I wear tinted glasses a lot of the time. Um, certain sounds really bother me. A lot of it is uh, like chewing sounds for some reason. I stabbed my brother with a fork when we were little because of his chewing sounds. And it still is an issue. I have trouble going to movie theaters. I can hear everyone crinkling their stuff, mm -hmm. and it just drives me nuts. Big lecture halls. I walked out of lecture halls for because everyone had a cold, and there was all this sniffling, mm -hmm. and, and it just it really gets to me. It's a little kind of those barely perceptible, irregular sounds that just kind of, they're niggling little things that kind mm -hmm. of get to you. Uh, the, those are my worst sounds. And, and super high pitch and loud, that's also a problem. I've worked with a lot of kids who scream at like a high pitch and it's really hard for me to, I have to really take a breath and... <laughs> And uh, to deal with that. I recommend it's... keeping your fork out of reach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they tend to frown upon stabbing. Kids, yeah, kids no, stabbing, no stabbing. <laughs> so was it a relief when you found out that what you were experiencing has a name and is a real thing and not just a personal flaw or weakness? Definitely. That was really helpful. Before that, I'd had some therapists who would kind of read diagnoses out of the DSM to me and like avoidant personality and dissociative disorders and things like that. And none of them really f seemed like they fit. And I felt like the therapist didn't really know what was going on. It felt like a lot of the time things just would kind of go in a circle and we weren't getting anywhere. And um, I think also I wanted to please the therapist. So it was hard for me to just say, no, I don't really want to interact with other kids. I find them boring. And I kind of knew that that would sound stuck up or something. Um, I don't know. But what Can you describe what it is when you're in a social interaction, what you think and feel that kind of brings on that anxiety or whatever the negative emotion is? Um, I think it's the, a lot of the time it's small talk and having to track what the person is saying while also watching what they're doing. Um, for a lot of people, I guess it's a very intuitive process, whereas I definitely tend to think about everything. It takes a lot of conscious effort, and I'll get distracted by little nonverbal things and not be able to, and then I can't hear what they're saying, really. I really have to concentrate on listening. So uh, do you then kind of go into, uh, you know, oh, that, you know, that person's got a, is that a facial tick? I wonder what what's that from, and then yeah. you start trying to... It's a thread that you begin pulling? Yeah, and a lot of the time I think, oh, they're they're wanting to get out of the conversation with me. They're bored about what I'm talking about, or I'm talking too much, I'm talking too little. How often is it turned them. against yourself? A lot, I think. The majority? Yeah. I, th I was always kind of an odd kid out, and it was I've always kind of felt like there was this message. Either there was something wrong with me, or I was kind of treated like I was invisible. How often is it you judging them? Uh, I th I kind of wonder if that was sort of a defense mechanism. Uh, Tony Atwood, in one of his books, 
he's a big autism theorist. He talks about that, that a lot of kids kind of to deal with that feeling of always being rejected, they become kind of pompous and that doesn't help the situation. And I definitely had that at points. I would correct teachers' grammar sometimes in elementary school and little things like that. I love that. Oh, yeah. That really won me a lot of friends. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A lot of my teachers did hate me. I was supposed to be skipped ahead of grade, but they thought socially it would be bad. So I just got into this thing where I was like, everyone's stupid. All these other kids are stupid. I already know this stuff. Why am I here? Why do I have to be? Uh, it was not a good not You a know, good time. <laughs> the world becomes slightly easier to navigate when you begin to realize that people who are pompous or arrogant or bullies are just deep down terrified. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I think in almost every situation where someone hurts someone else, it's part of a chain and that it didn't just come from nowhere. Most people mm-hmm. aren't born wanting to hurt other people. And I think that's one of the hardest things in life is when we find ourselves crossing that line, rubbing people the wrong way to try to ask ourselves, what is our part in it? What is it that is scaring us? Because I think if we if we've been numb for most of our lives, if we had some type of shutdown defense, um, we don't know yes. what's going on. That's really easy to jump into that that fight or flight mode, and I've I've had a little bit of that where I get aggressive kind of easily, and I've had kind of mild bullying, like sort of attacking things and health problems. I often. I think feel very vulnerable like uh, twice in my life I've had disorder or medical issues where I felt like my body was kind of falling apart around me I had arthritis and rheumatic fever and I couldn't stand up I needed help getting up from the toilet and things like that and just could really not move and it was really a frightening thing and I definitely feel like I can snap into that feeling vulnerable like the cornered you know wounded Mm -hmm. animal and just wanting to lash out and I catch myself going there and I try to kind of pull back really the only the most recent times I can think when that's happened is uh, I'll be out dancing with people and someone will plant themselves and not move next to me and then tell me not to dance so much near them and it's like you know uh, this is a dance floor. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be dancing. I'm so, you know, if you just stand there and stand really close to me that we might bump into each other. And it's not even like a body slam issue right. or anything, but I've definitely find myself getting really heated. And What's the fantasy then in your head? Oh, just attacking them. I was really... I like had, how? Oh, nails and teeth and clawing. I'm, I Taking a bite out of them? Yes. <laughs> Where would you take a bite out of them? Uh, jugular. Definitely yeah? go straight for the jugular. Big, I used to, big mouthful of like <laughs> flesh? I, it's a weird... I do feel like I have like a... There's a chained beast in there that uh, has been poked and prodded at a lot, and I try to take good care of it and keep it down there, and it, it bubbles up sometimes. It's never really got... I've been on one rampage, but I didn't hurt anyone. It was... But I just told a lot of people what I thought, which I, reg- I regretted afterwards, but it was a good learning experience that you can't let it build up and ignore when you're feeling vulnerable, and that's, there's a point where you have to take care of it. I do really miss in basketball. I used to really throw the elbows and like I was very physical. Were you a center because you're pretty tall? Yes, yes. I did. I was uh, post and center, defense. I think 
just get down there and catch the rebounds and smack yeah. <laughs> anyone else trying to get it. I really miss that. I would imagine, too, sports for someone with Asperger's is so nice for that ability to hyper-focus. Yeah. I was a very good player, but I tried out for the basketball team in my middle school, um, and I did really well in the scrimmage. I scored more points, I think, than anyone else in my group. I didn't do very well on the running part of it. The boys got to use the mile track, and we had to run, like, five miles or something, like, because they were using it. But anyway, uh, I didn't make the team, and my mom ran into the P teacher several years later at a grocery store or something, and she said, oh, I just didn't think I would be a good fit with the rest of the team. So it was a personality. Yeah, issue. it was a social thing. She also told me I had a barrel chest when she was doing my, my uh, scoliosis thing, kind of made a comment about how being broad <laughs> and I, I always felt like she kind of didn't like me I got that from it's a lot so of teachers it's so odd because you, you you don't look <laughs> I was really overweight too I don't know how I, at one point I was 220 I was pretty thick and I do have a little bit of a rib cage I get it from my dad but not I probably blow it up in my head more than it is because of little things like that but that's I'm funny because because someone could truly like mistake you for a model. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> I was uh, I was in Vegas with uh, my friend who brought me here today, and uh, I was in a I got into a hula hoop contest. I love hula hooping; it's one of my favorite exercises. Um, and they they named me Malibu Barbie, and I had this like while I was hooping, and it really took me off guard because I still think back to when I was that. 13 or 14 and just really real like I remember like turning sideways and just looking like pregnant like I, I think I was morbidly obese at that point like really like it was intense so I, how did the how did the weight come off because you don't it doesn't seem to be an, an issue for you now is it uh no well I keep on top of it and it's a lot of it came on when I started with um, the first therapist, and there was a psychiatrist in her building, and he prescribed me, like, I was on six different medications at the same time. He just kept stacking them on top of each other, and I would get more sedated and sluggish and um, put on more and more weight and just was miserable, uh, but I... Uh, he. It took a long time for him and my parents to see that the medications weren't working. It's really hard not to trust a doctor. You know, they're supposed to know what they're doing. I found out later that he gave a two, uh, some very young child an overdose, and actually the kid died, and the doctor was sued. He he didn't seem like a very responsible prescriber. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was not good. And and that is so counter for the rest of people that, that that already have in their mind this preconceived notion that the doctor is just going to fuck them up and they're going to do exactly yeah. what that guy did and it makes me so angry because there are so many good doctors out there. There are good really therapists. good ones. But it's really important to be able to, I think, uh, go into it willing to see that they could be not good and I think it's really easy to for the authority to just kind of convince you that they're safe but I've what, what are some bed. signs for you that you're with a doctor that's not good um I think uh if they're trying to rush you and if they don't really seem to be asking 
very many questions or you know this guy he would just say how do you feel on a scale one to ten and as long as the number was higher than it was last week and being kind of like just wanting to please adults you know as a kid you're just like better you know and Mm -hmm. and that was really it and then if it wasn't better then he would just give me another medication or if I mentioned side effects he'd give me another medication for that and I found out now I know that that was all off-label so none of those prescriptions were approved for children one of them was Paxil which later they found Mm. can cause suicide with younger kids and teenagers and um, I find if on the first visit uh, the psychiatrist has his shirt off. That's usually a bad <laughs> His bathrobe or something. Uh, yeah, there's a feeling that I get from like a therapist or a, a psychiatrist that there has to be some type of curiosity on their part. Um, there's a there, there was feelings that I've had before from psychiatrists where there was, I don't know, there was just... It was almost like they were too quick to to go, oh, this pill will fix that. Yeah. They barely look at you. That's what I remember with him. He was just kind of always flipping through paperwork and didn't really seem to even see that I was there or want to know anything. It was just very like, how do I get you out of here as fast as possible and prescribe as much as I can? Yeah. It was very... It's hard to to say, uh, really, to put your finger on it exactly, because I want to give people... Some advice that are, that, you know, they're going to go see their first psychiatrist. Um, but I'd say, you know, just talk to other people. You know, join join the forum on the website. Start talking to people. Talk to any friends you know. And that's why I think support groups are so awesome is yeah. you can get some feedback from people and maybe get a, a, a reference or recommendation from somebody who has one that they like. Because people that have been in support groups for a while are used to doing that digging and they know a little bit about the process. And so they're they're going to have more of an intuitive sense of what is good in a therapist or psychiatrist than, than somebody that isn't also doing that outside work. Definitely. I I know when I went to college, I went out of state and I, I thought, oh, I'm fine. I, you know, I've survived my stomach things. I've had cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm good. I can take anything. I'm set for life. And uh and my mom luckily was like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, do do a little searching on your behalf uh, just in case something happens. And she contacted uh, a great guy who does a, a support group uh, in Portland, Roger and Meyer. He's uh, he, he heads up a support group for adults with Asperger's. Um, he's he does research with autism. He's a really. He's really spent a lot of time researching it and has all these helpful tips about uh, he had a whole list of people that I could see who knew about Asperger's and that he knew people who'd seen them. And that really helped a lot. Uh, And he had just really great advice, too. Um, There was something he said, like, if the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you need to listen to that. And Mm -hmm. there have been so many times since then that I've thought about that. <laughs> yeah, learning to to trust your body is has, has been so hugely revelatory for me. And I think for for those of us that have grown up with conditions or somehow this innate feeling that we're broken or dirty or flawed, um, our body is kind of our enemy. 
Yeah. And so I think we go to a place where we just go, oh, it's the, it's my enemy sending me fucking messages again. I, I don't need to listen to them. But yeah. sometimes it's a, something really important that we need to listen to. And then there's other times where it's like, oh, that's just me kind of freaking out. Yeah. I was definitely doing that on the way in. I get uh, my teeth chatter and my eye twitches. And it's just... At this point, I just know it's going to happen. It happens before every test I have. They're all... Everything... Anything stressful, is that's going to mm-hmm. happen a little bit. And the more I accept it, the less it happens, I find. And I think... I've been working with the therapist about uh, finding relaxation techniques that work. And I tried meditation, and I feel like the more cognitive approach is a little bit harder for me. And now she has a more somatic approach. She does orienting, deceit with me where you kind of pay attention to the contact points of where you're sitting and somatic meaning getting in touch with your body yeah exactly yeah and that's really helped me i was going to my counseling classes and we'd watch couples counseling videos and i kept crying during them they're just really heartbreaking to watch and no one else was crying and i i just wanted to get that under control because I don't want to do that to clients mm-hmm. <laughs> ever. <laughs> just lose it on them. Well, it wasn't intense crying, but just the the trickle. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, what you know? They talk about Aspergers being on the autism spectrum. Um, what is there on the autism spectrum other than autism and Aspergers, or is that kind of it? Um, autism uh, can vary a lot. Uh, there's terms uh, like low functioning and high functioning and that's generally kind of referring to verbal ability and communication skills and uh, basic life skills and things like that like how well they're able to function independently Um, and with Asperger's the reason they got rid of it in the DSM-5 is there's not a clear clinical distinction in research between Asperger's syndrome and high functioning autism before there was a distinction where they said uh, if there was a verbal delay early in childhood, then it was high functioning autism, and if there wasn't a verbal delay, then it was Asperger's. But I did have a verbal delay, verbal delay, but I got an Asperger's diagnosis. Um, a lot of the time, diagnoses are kind of given in a functional way or for insurance. I'm learning about all of this mm-hmm. now, and it's a little bit weird. <laughs> I'm going to say you're Suspicious. an autistic underachiever. <laughs> so, so let's uh, talk about some seminal moments. I know, noticed you got some stuff written down oh, on cards. Um, <laughs> I was what, scared of blanking. <laughs> that's okay. Um, where where would you like to to go? Um, probably, I feel like the bullying is important. Um, I only kind of recently realized that I was bullied. It wasn't all the time. And I know a lot of kids, you know, every day they're picked on. But even just having a few bad incidents was enough to... I think that's where a lot of that fighting impulse mm-hmm. comes from. Uh, fortunately, I tend to f- be a fleer. But I, I do wonder, uh, the next person who attacks me in any way, I'm pretty sure I'm going to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a home invader a while ago, and I, I had a night. Luckily, there were guys in the house that I could call, and they they dealt with it. But uh, this person was coming to rob. He was what? in the closet. He was probably, 
uh, had he had some kind of mental issue or was I was intoxicated. So he wasn't making any sense. I just woke up in the middle of the night. I had a dream that people were climbing in through the window and were going to play a prank on me. And I, I was with my boyfriend at the time. And um, then he was I in w- the bed with you. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I woke up and I, I I thought it was just a dream, but then I still heard someone talking in the room. And I, I listened for a few minutes. I thought I was just dreaming still. And finally, I woke him up, my boyfriend, and told him to go look. Uh, and he went over. He was really indignant about it. And uh, he threw the door open. I was like, see, there's nothing there. And there was a guy in there. <laughs> uh, it was like, you know, like when you catch raccoons going through yeah. your trash, that like frozen thing. And I just immediately jumped up and ran downstairs and got another one of his roommates and a knife. And uh, they kind of guided him. Not a fork? No, not a (laughs) fork. Uh, But uh, I don't know. It was was very scary. So so what did your boyfriend do? Oh, technically he was an ex. I should have said that before. Okay. But uh, he, uh, he was trying to be nice and talk to him but apparently the guy wasn't really willing to leave but then the other guy came in and he realized he was outnumbered so he started to go but before he went out through the door no one had gotten in front of him and he started turning back in towards the house and coming towards me and at one point we're about five or six feet away I was behind a wall mm-hmm. kind of like the last place I could hide I was in my pajamas like a I don't know, but uh, I had this knife, and I was like, "If he comes <laughs> any closer to me, uh, that's it for him." <laughs> and luckily, they came and got him. But it was just a really frightening, frightening experience. So, <laughs> it's safe to say this guy was in some kind of psychosis or psych- yeah, psychotic state. Yeah, he had state. a rock, um, like a, that. He I, he may have been planning to use as a weapon or something. Oh my god! It's a very creepy thing. I don't know. Uh, I was in a class recently and my professor was talking about a a client who was worried about someone coming into a room at night and and he was like oh you know that's kind of unreasonable and I was like well (laughs) it happens (laughs) you never know Um, but I always have that feeling like that you know someone's going to come out I, I live alone now and I'm always worried about people coming in the night I have like a sign in my window saying that I have a gun. I don't own a gun, but mm-hmm. trying to scare them if they do try to come in. Uh, I know it's a little bit probably over the top, but I feel like it, it's not hurting anyone. It makes me feel better, so that's okay. Um, I do. I've done a lot of. I like fencing, and uh, I did a little bit of longsword training, and I've been thinking about getting a longsword for personal defense, but I don't know. If that would be super effective. Just anyone from Game of Thrones attacks you? Yes. <laughs> Preparing for that. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I would hurt myself with a gun, like, by accident or, I don't know. I just, having them around makes me very nervous. When somebody crosses your your boundaries, like, just shit, not only crosses them, but, like, shits on them. Yeah. It, it is so common, I think, to freeze up because you suddenly realize, Oh, this person isn't playing by the rules of yeah. society. What else is in store? And I, and I hope anybody listening that has frozen and you know, be it 
some type of sexual assault and they can't find the words or the movement to defend themselves, I hope that they can find some compassion for themselves because it is so it is so incredibly common and and it's it's so human to do that and yet so many people play the shoulda coulda woulda game and then blame themselves put no responsibility on the person yeah. that violated them or their space and completely blame themselves do you think that's because we don't want to picture ourselves as having been helpless and vulnerable Why definitely <laughs> I I know I I when I was a kid like uh, I think seven uh, we had some neighbors and one of their kids uh, he had been uh, shown porn and we don't really know what else but by someone else's parents uh, a friend like a, a school friend of his and then uh, he sort of like got me into a sexual situation like at seven all I really remember about it was that he I think he was trying to get me to jerk him off or something he was like nine yeah it was like very young it was a very weird part of me never really believed that it happened until later I I mentioned it like a detail about it and all of a sudden uh uh to explain I guess uh I don't really remember being in that situation, but I remember the window, and uh, and at some point, uh, the guy's brother came in and saw what was happening, and then it stopped, and I mentioned this to my mom one time. I was like, I have this weird thing that came back. Uh, all of a sudden, it's popped into my head. I feel like it's always been there, but I've never really been able to fully be aware of it. Um, and she said, oh, we found the brother in a closet crying this one time. And I kind of think that was probably when it happened. And I, I think I kind of had found that. Found the, the, the other brother that walked in? The, yeah, the one, the one that, that walked in. Yeah, yeah he, he was really upset. And after that, they would kind of... Arf- Who was older? The, the brother that walked in? Yeah, he was the older. He was probably four or five years older. And I know they usually say, like, uh, I think I've heard somewhere that there's a certain age range for it to be abuse among children. But I definitely remember feeling like I was being manipulated into reproducing something, and I didn't know what it was at all. Like, I I knew what sex was at that point, but I didn't connect that with what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And I... I definitely felt taken advantage of then, and then later in, I think it was fourth grade, some sometime fourth, fourth grade, fifth grade, something like that. Uh, at one point, a kid on the playground held me down and pulled my shirt up, and I was overweight and uh, matured early, I guess, and uh, that was a really uncomfortable experience, like basically flashed me uh to everyone. Uncomfortable seems like a, a understatement. An maybe. understatement. Yeah. I'd never told anyone about it either. And then another, it, around that time too, uh, a kid, and that time I didn't do anything either. I never gotten got, I didn't want to get him in trouble. I don't know why. Uh, and then a third time I was in class and this boy next to me started putting his hand, like running it up my thigh. He's wearing a dress and uh started like trying to feel me up again a kid my age uh i i hissed like no stop it 
stabbed him. He wouldn't listen. And instead of talking to the teacher, who was like a few feet away, I just stabbed him with my mechanical pencil. That's the last stabbing, I think, in, <laughs> in this. But I, I, And I do have that kind of like, I feel like a lot of the time I kind of coil up and freeze, but mm-hmm. then I'm just waiting to kind of like, waiting to strike a little bit. Mm-hmm. And once I, and I, I get scared about that because I don't want, I don't want to rush into doing something hurtful to anyone. I choose not to work with uh, people with issues with violence because I don't want to hurt them if they attack me, which may happen. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I haven't had the training either to deal with restraints or anything like that. But I think that's an area I just want to stay away from. I don't want to feel physically threatened. It just nothing takes me to that place as much as that physical. Boundaries well, being well, you know broken. the things that you've described to me that have triggered your response, other than stabbing your sister, oh brother, or brother. <laughs> you know all the other things that you've described sound like human responses to yeah. having your boundaries completely violated by somebody, and I, I don't consider that to be necessarily um, worrisome or like outlandish. I. I've told that, gone through it with several therapists, and I always feel like they're going to tell me, you know, you should have told the teacher or something. But they always say that, you know, I feel like a lot of the time I like, I need that kind of reassurance. I can tell myself that, but every once in a while I need something external. I, I really am a nonviolent person. I really, the last thing I ever want to do is do harm to anyone. And it's something I've, I weirdly feel guilty about, even though it was definitely provoked. And I think I, I don't know, like given the situation, I kind of did the best I could, but that's, it's a hard thing. I, yeah. I hate that I got to that point. And I think a lot of it was just not feeling like I had any teachers or anyone there that would back me up or, or noticed or cared, uh, you know, if it was happening. So I kind of just felt like I had to deal with it on my own and take it into my hands and everything. Yeah, I mean, wh- what what human being wouldn't kind of freak out a little bit when you feel cornered and alone and overwhelmed? Yeah, yeah. With the playground with the shirt thing, that was in front of tons of people, and no one did anything. No, It was a very, everything just kind of froze. I couldn't really see because my shirt was over my head, but I just remember feeling like, everything stopped for a second. It was just like, is this really happening? Is that freezing mm-hmm. thing, I think, where just everything stops and you just can't believe whatever it is is happening and it's too late anyway to do anything. Um, you, can, you you know, you feel that terror start at the top of your head and like a yeah. wave roll through your body. Yeah. Like almost like a shock. Yeah. And it sounds like that's, that's what happened to you when you were on that playground. I mean, that's... Especially at that age, at any age, that would be terrifying. Yeah. But especially at that age when you're on the, you know, cusp of puberty. Yeah. It was. It was definitely not not a pleasant experience. Was there anyone that you were able to to go and no, talk to? I never told anyone you just about it, it ever. Yeah, it was so embarrassing. I think I kind of ejected out of myself, and I had kind of issues with where I would almost try to detach a lot in school. I just always felt kind of uncomfortable in the hallways. The jostling felt like a really mild version of that kind of attack. I think once things like that happen a few times, you just feel like it's coming from everywhere all the time. And I remember being in class and just trying to meditate to to nothingness 
at like a real, I think, 11 years old or something, just wanting to not exist. Uh, Have you ever cried about that event? I think so. At some point, um, I went back uh, and actually hung out with uh, the brothers that the where it kind of all started as an adult a couple of years ago, and that's when I sort of I think let go of. I realized that it was an adult who had kind of weaponized him, and mm-hmm. it was he was a kid too, and uh, we never really talked about it or anything. And maybe that would have helped, but I felt. Right after that, I kind of started really, it all hit me at the same time. It was also when I started dating my ex, and it was kind of the first serious relationship I'd had. And that in conjunction with kind of confronting something like that from the past and wanting to be able to communicate about it, but not knowing how. I'd, I There was a couple of months there where I talked to him about it. I kind of blurted it out to some friends at some point. Like just saw, I got really... I felt really like I was kind of a mess around then. I was having another pretty major health issue, uh, rheumatic fever at the time. That's when the arthritis was happening. Mm. So that didn't help either. I think I would have been a mess anyway at that point. But trying to deal with those heavy things for the first time on top of also not knowing if I had lupus or... Oh, my God. I was convinced for at least a month or two that HIV... Because they, you know, all autoimmune disorders tend to look pretty similar, and it was a really terrifying. That whole period was horrifying. It, well, yeah. you know, one of the things that I found so tremendously helpful about support groups is the trigger to—I don't know what the word is—reprocess, mourn, feel, and cry about something that happened to us. Um, Hearing somebody else's story who is similar to mine has been the greatest catalyst for me revisiting something, not in a way to make myself feel bad or to blame somebody else, but to feel the feelings that I couldn't feel at that time because it was too overwhelming, and to be able to cry for a half hour um, and ask a friend, can you give me a hug, and sob on their shoulder. I felt so much lighter that the time that I did look back at that event and go, oh my God, that was fucking horrifying. That was, I left my body and it wasn't important to go back to blame my mom. It was important for me to feel that, to feel those feelings and let them come out almost almost like a big shit. Yeah. I, I felt lighter <laughs> after that. And and it also gave me more clarity about my relationship with my mom. But it the most important thing was was to let that pain out. Yeah. Because I think most of our dysfunction and our addictions and our inability to be present is really about fighting that beast that we stuffed down yeah. because we didn't have the words to express it when we were kids. I really, I wanted that so badly at that time, and I felt like the situations I chose to share it in weren't ideal, um, and I I did all the crying and everything, but it was kind of, uh, with my friends, they, you know, it was like in a party situation, like it was not the appropriate time or place, mm-hmm. just someone said it's something. It's so rarely appropriate. And set, my, <laughs> set me off, yeah, yeah. and 
there everyone was, I just remember everyone kind of like that like mm-hmm. you know what time is it uh, I need to go somewhere kind of a feeling and just how bad that was and I ta- I I told my ex too at the time uh, and I, I'll never forget instead of like hugging or anything it was just like I don't know what to say about that just sort of like kind of you know and it's that was really a frustrating thing as well I just didn't really get that uh that feeling that I needed from it but I did have I had one really good friend that um I could kind of lay it all out for and we've we've cried with each other many times uh he was a friend of mine in high school and they moved with me uh up to the northwest uh, when I went to college up there and um I don't know with him too I feel like if I hadn't had him in my life I don't know if I would what did, made it. what did what did it feel like when you when you went to him and you let it out? Do you remember what you said to him? What you were thinking or feeling? I had. It was uh, right after it, it first started occurring to me. It came up first uh, when I was sixteen or seventeen. I had uh, my first boyfriend, and um, we'd gone out somewhere, and I was I was driving my car and taking him home and he he out of nowhere he started saying oh take a right here kind of directing the car and then he was like pull over here I didn't know what was going on I was very naive about the whole thing and he was it's like uh, and then he started like trying to you know make out in the car at some point he put my hand down his pants and it triggered that memory Mm -hmm. like that tactile thing was (laughs) like the main thing that stuck out before and um, the next thing I knew I felt like I had been possessed by something like it's almost like you know mm-hmm. Linda Blair like this voice that wasn't mine came out of me and just kind of emotionally eviscerated him he was crying what did you say to him I don't remember I just remember this like like yeah. a really like tight something it was a very frightening part of myself that I did not know was there at that time and it just came out and really laid into him. I think basically it was something along the lines of his manipulative, that manipulative thing really, because of, I think, what happened when I was a kid, that's what, that really gets to me. Um, and then, I don't know. The, I I think I just kind of basically said he was full of shit, and, uh, which he kind of was. He was a secret drinker at the time. I think that's why it was sort of... It was definitely an odd circumstance. It wasn't like a normal, you know, romantic thing. It was very... It was very weird. A lot of games being played. Yeah. Um, And I felt really bad. I kind of went into like a catatonic thing. I just sat in my room. I drew a picture like of this like swirling vortex kind of a thing. I just... All of a sudden all this stuff, this darkness just felt like it opened up <laughs> and um and it was that was when I remembered I, I asked my mom and she told me about the the clo- that she'd found the the brother in the closet and that kind of all of a sudden it was real and I told my friend who recently come out of the closet to me and I was one of the a lot first, of closets in this yeah <laughs> a lot of closets <laughs> closets and stabbings are yeah. the, the themes of the day <laughs> Uh, Go ahead, I cut you off. Oh, yeah. he he is just a really incredibly sweet, sensitive person, and um, 
I I remember him just hugging me and just crying and crying and it was really nice because I felt like I'd see I'd been there when he cried we cried to get like that was really when I started feeling empathy and connection with other people my age before that it was always when I had friends it was just sort of because I felt like I had to I didn't really like them I didn't want to be there but my parents thought it was a good idea their parents wanted us to hang out or it was always kind of external things and then I felt like he really accepted me and understood me we had similar interests and um that really helped a lot to have that at that point I don't know how I would have gotten through it otherwise is it is it safe to say that it it was maybe the first time you felt heard and felt and seen by a peer definitely by far I don't think a, a few friends that I'd had before that um they generally were not nice to I it, it's weird to think back that I even thought they were friends because they would kind of say mean things and you know when parent when adults weren't around they would kind of tear me down a little bit about weight and things like that and it was just really I remember one girl that lived down the street was like I'm gonna start exercising you and taking you to church and you know I just really felt like people wanted me to be different I feel like that's a big thing with Asperger's everything tells you you're wrong and you have to conform to this thing and it just doesn't feel like you um then luckily he kind of he had a similar like we mo- we'd lived in kind of similar places moved around the same ages um we liked art and drawing and stuff i don't know we just had a lot in common it was the first time i really felt like i could let my guard down and he wouldn't you know, kind of snipe at me as soon as he had the chance. Sounds like a really beautiful guy. He's a great... I've been very lucky to have a few really good friends um, that, that I can talk to anytime, and it's amazing to have that support. I never expected that. Um, coming out here and everything, uh, it's been really interesting to get to stay with another friend who's really supportive and knows me really well like there are times when I have trouble saying what I need and he just knows from looking at me and that's such a nice place to get to some get to with someone I want to be better at articulating being assertive and I'm getting there but it's really nice do you feel like you're the same thing for him I hope so I really try to be there and be supportive I know you sound like you would like you are he told I I found out today or it was I think yesterday um, he said I was the first person he'd come out to, and I don't think, I don't know if I knew that before. If I did, I'd, I, I hadn't thought about it in a while. I think I, even when I know that someone uh, trusts me, I think I start trying to downplay it and saying, oh, you know, I have Asperger's. No one really thinks uh, I, I, I'm socially aware enough to be a good friend or anything. But I do feel like I'm a loyal I try to be really loyal and non-judgmental, and I don't know. I, I, I think it's a pretty good sign that you're doing your job as a human being if you're the first person someone chooses to come out to because you feel safe to them. I mean, that that's what a privilege. I really feel special to have had that. It's... I. I hope you told him it was wrong and against God. Uh, of course. <laughs> 
Well, you know what that sound is. It's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. And our sponsor for this episode is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to create your own website. Um, as I've mentioned before uh, about Squarespace, is everything on the site is drag and drop, which I don't know why anybody would have a website that where you create websites that isn't drag and drop. Um, oh, the old days of having to use HTML and all that other bullshit. Um, they have 24-7 support, which I think is really cool. Um, not a lot of places do. There's nothing worse than being stuck with a technical issue, and it's 2 in the morning, and you just want to put your fist through a wall. I think they should make that their, their ad slogan. Don't put your fist through a wall at 2 in the morning. But... Um, Squarespace is constantly adding new features. Um, they've got two new templates up uh, that are that are really cool, and they have a really cool way now to. I'm going to use the word "cool" a little bit more. They have a a great way now to uh, post your events calendar and uh, ways to duplicate pages and to send forms to multiple locations. Uh, go check it out. It's uh, they really care about what they're doing there. Why would you want a place that isn't cutting edge? Because you're a douche, that's why. But then that means you listen to me. That means I'm a douche. I don't like the direction this has taken. All right. Go to squarespace.com right now and get 10% off and um, use the offer code HAPPY. Thank you, Squarespace. It's hard sometimes, though, with, like, uh, we went to some Pride events, and uh, it's... You know, there was a point where uh, homosexuality was in the DSM and considered a disease. And I feel like Asperger's is kind of one of those things. Obviously, they're very, they're not the same, but just in terms of people judging you mm -hmm. and thinking you're, there's something wrong with you and the way that you live. And uh, I, I really admire uh, the people I know who are out and, you know, make it a point of not hiding who they are but I feel like I have to hide uh, in my profession a little bit and that's really been a it sticks in my craw <laughs> I don't like it and I feel kind of wimpy about it and I'm still trying to decide how to deal with that exactly well you know it would be interesting to see what the world would look like if we didn't have people with Asperger's and people with depression and yeah. all the things that kind of force people to even though it's a burden to live with those things, there's these beautiful things that come out of it. You know, people who have lived with depression often wind up being more intuitive and sensitive. Um, people who've lived with Asperger's are able to focus, I would imagine, in a way that their co-workers only dream of being able to <laughs> to, to focus and, and achieve. That's definitely... I've heard that from a lot of people. I can just sit and... I'll, I'll be in front of my laptop for 48 hours straight, maybe taking, you know, a couple hours to sleep here and there, but I can really just sit and do something for a ridiculous amount of time, probably an unhealthy amount of time, but I try to rein it in. But there are times when it's handy. If you have a paper due and <laughs> mm -hmm. left it to the last minute, it comes in handy. <laughs> so what is the, the, the next um, things? Would you Do you want to talk about the, the scars? Oh, yeah. Oh, I had a, when I, I was, after I tried talking to people sort of about the, the sexual stuff that happened with me, or maybe it was, it was before that, actually, uh, 
I was living uh, in a house with some friends, and we were all having a tough time, I think. And in the middle of that, I also found out that I had uh, an autoimmune disorder, and I had a biopsy done. I'll never forget lying on this surgical table alone with this doctor in a pool of my own blood. They just cut a chunk out of my stomach around my navel. Oh, my God. And the, I was just bleeding and bleeding, and the, I could feel the blood pooling around me. And he he was looking at my face, and I had a butterfly rash. And he was like, this really, we won't get the biopsy results back for two weeks, but I just want to tell you this really looks like lupus. And just prepare yourself. And it, it wasn't, uh, but I remember going, I got out of the parking lot and realized I couldn't drive, and I pulled over somewhere and was just kind of had one of those, like, I can't breathe, I don't know, you know, what am I going to do? Uh kind of a moment um and then I made it home and I think I didn't really let on to the people around me how how afraid I was and they had a lot of their own issues and I would kind of get in the middle of little tiffs and things and also a lot of people were really busy with school and I had to drop out because I couldn't I could barely walk or it rheumatic fever attacks all your systems brain heart I got a heart murmur and in the process. I could literally feel my heart ripping at the time. Oh my god. And uh uh it was it was very rough and I didn't ask for help and I didn't feel like there was enough. Although I do think I should have just gone home then, but I had a new boyfriend, I thought I was in love and um I didn't want to leave uh all of that, so I stayed. But then the support I needed a lot of support and I couldn't quite get it and there was a party at my house this one night and I was exhausted and there you know it was just full of people and Noise. I just knew it was going to be a mess yeah beer bottles and just chaos everywhere really ski there were these two two skeezy guys that really creeped me out in my freshman year Co- tried to corner me in a basement luckily someone rescued me but again just have the idea of having those creeps in my house just really bugged me and one of them was selling uh Xanax which I later found out was homemade <laughs> and uh I was like well they they prescribed me this at the health center before to go to sleep I I have have a real big history with insomnia and nothing puts me down I am a tank and nothing really seems to work uh, uh I don't know and the so I thought, oh, whatever, I'll just take this and hopefully pass out. And instead, I ended up going on kind of a three-day, like, telling everyone exactly what I thought of them. <laughs> was it mania? I, it was a very, like, I don't know how to describe hmm. it. I, 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 I was angry, but I was also calm like kind of eerily calm. Was it you were telling them about themselves, what you didn't like about them, or yeah, you're sharing parts from, of your life or both? I I kind of tried to like continue as normal. Uh, there was so much in my system, but I didn't realize that it was still in my system. So I was trying to go about normal things. And uh, like a friend asked me for a ride and this had been happening a lot. And I was like, I, I can barely move. Getting in and out of the car is really hard. This is a very short walk, but I, I I said, okay, I'll give you a ride. And I went to go pick her up, 
And halfway home, I was just like, get out of the car. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just, and took off. And then my friend, the guy that I told you about that I really, the from high school that came up with me, he tried to help and he took away my car keys and he was out calling someone or trying to trying to help me and while he was out of the room I grabbed my keys and left and disappeared for a while and I ripped this limb off a tree that was like I'd seen like a six five like 200 plus pound man like try to rip off and I pulled it off with one arm I got in a really big fight with my boy my ex-boyfriend at the time I, I threw bottles past his head I didn't throw them at him I had I was just mm-hmm. I was just pissed and I wanted to scare him but it that's a terrifying thought I I remember I remember everything but I don't feel like I was there for it or like in the driver's seat it was just like all these feelings of like how could you all you know let me down and I'm dying Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm not in school and school is the most important thing in my life and what am I, I it was just a total implosion and um and at one point, I I put out about half a pack of cigarettes on my arm, uh, put put them out on my arm, and I still have scars from that. Uh, I was dating someone recently, and they asked about them, and it, <laughs> and I told them what they were, and it was just a really uncomfortable thing, sort of like again, like they didn't really respond in probably the optimal way. It was just sort of shock, which I understand. Um, I'd done. I'd put a cigarette out of my hand once before in high school, um, just out of curiosity. I think I don't know. I have had a lot of physical issues, and when I I feel like I'm out of control of my body, I get angry with it. I think, and I want to punish it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it didn't. I just remember not even like reacting, just like, you know, lighting up, smoking half of it and like just grinding it in and not caring. Was there a a release or a euphoria in it? Or Um, was there just kind of a, oh, look at this, I'm kind of numb? Yeah, it was kind of a numb thing, I think. And then then I I was fighting again with my ex and uh, I punched a... A piece of furniture and I broke my hand like I got a boxer's fracture Um, and then they uh, I got a ticket home I had to get an airplane ticket I was just like I need to be out of here or you know I'm just doing all this damage Uh, I, I ran into someone else before I left who'd taken the Xanax from that same batch we were in the mm-hmm. back of two different cars and we just happened to run into each other in a parking lot and she was looked you know in shock and fried and I was in shock and fried and I think a lot of it was whatever that was um, uh, but there it, there was a lot of frustration behind it as well I don't think she she went on quite as big of a rampage as I did (laughs) it was it's pretty intense and no I've always been really soft-spoken and can I help you and you know whatever I can do I'll do to help you and that like the least confrontational person I don't know that I knew I think at that time but it just all bottled up to a point where I couldn't handle it and totally imploded 
I, I started having kind of a panic attack on the plane. It was a night flight, and it was all dark, and there's kind of a sea of people, and large groups of people have always kind of made me uncomfortable, and especially when you're kind of coming off a rampage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I call it. I, I'm sure there's a better term. I've never had a, a clinical term put on it so far. I don't know, but... I went to the back of the plane to go to the bathroom, and this really nice uh, uh, air steward, Mm -hmm. a steward, uh, this nice guy, uh, I I told him, you know, I'm sorry, I just, I need to be in the back here for a second. There are just a a lot of people out there, and I'm a little bit stressed out right now. (laughs) My arm was bandaged, and I said, "I've, I've just, you know, I've made a huge mess in my life. I got sick, and just wanted everyone to take care of me but I couldn't you know I also didn't want them to take care of me and he told me that he'd gone through something with an ex-girlfriend where she'd been in a car accident and couldn't move and he'd taken care of her and then they broke up right after she got better because that just that experience of having someone that intense interdependent feeling can be or I guess it's a one-way dependence feeling can just really be hard on a relationship I don't know it was just a it was so nice of him I felt like to to talk me down like that it was a really sweet moment like in the that darkest hour to have a stranger be so compassionate and friendly and you know, say, hey, it's okay. We've all <laughs> we've all had yeah. our moments. It really made a big difference. Because I think in that moment, we forget that everybody else gets overwhelmed and has trauma and stuff like that. We think we're the only ones and we mm-hmm. are just, everybody, everybody else is getting A's and B's and we're the F. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, just, I'd written myself off, I think, at that point. I was just, I'm done. Mm-hmm. It's over. I, you know... Uh, it was a really amazing thing to. I, I wish I remembered that guy's name. I would like to thank him. I really appreciate that. I hope that the, the kids that we have that listen to this, because we do get um, people under under eighteen that listen to it, and I really hope um, that they get comfort from hearing the stuff that that we talk about. And because when you're when you're a teenager, man, you think. Everything is forever. Yeah. And, and it's you, only you. And it's only you. And everybody knows. And it's all your fault. Yeah. That's and everybody knows. I like the I things that I've shared that. on this podcast. Even in my 20s, I would have probably killed myself if th- those things had, like, come out. You know yeah. what I mean? Or I would have wanted to die if people mm-hmm. knew the things that I've I've shared about myself on this podcast. But... It's actually freeing. There's like an ownership that you get from choosing to share stuff about yourself um, that is so much different than being gossiped about. Definitely. It's interesting. uh, People with Asperger's have kind of adopted the phrase coming out, too, because it's sort of a thing. It's not a physical, obvious thing. Um, It's just... And it's kind of... You have to decide when you want to do it or risk that'll come out in some other way that you don't have control over. And uh, that's I'm definitely in the middle of trying to figure that out right now, hence the anonymity. (laughs) Well, plus, too, the profession that you're going into um, to be a therapist, um, the therapist that I've talked to, 
you don't really want your patients to be able to know a lot of stuff personally yeah, about you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with the internet, it's very easy to find that stuff out, and that kind of clouds the relationship with the patient and the, and the therapist, I'm, definitely. I'm told. Yeah, with, with social networking and all of that stuff, they really warned us, like, you know, make sure you kind of have everything as private as possible and yeah that personal information doesn't get out because you don't want to become the focus instead of the the client mm -hmm. um, yeah I, I worry about that a lot uh, I worked with uh, probably hundreds at this point of kids with autism and I don't think I've ever told any of them that I have Asperger's and that kind of makes me sad in a way like I I wish it was just something that you know it could be there it wouldn't have to be like a big deal mm -hmm. or anything but I do think it would it would have been if I were them I try to think of what I would have wanted at that age and if I could have known someone who was kind of in the same boat that would have helped a lot but hopefully they're more now they're starting to do peer mentoring programs with autism and that's being set up more it can be a really I think positive positive thing for people and it's helpful to the person to the older person too because you've been through a lot of probably you know intense challenges socially and had a lot of rejection and it it's really great to be able to have that mean something and have value to another person yeah, and, and have your pain now have a purpose yeah that's, that's that, so important that's like purpose. the greatest alchemy in the world that purpose thing is so important with with kids in general but I think especially with autism because the fulfillment a lot of people get out of socializing a lot of the time they don't get that and uh, like people that are really successful with autism like Temple Grandin you know mm -hmm. the, her purpose is her job and being successful in, at that is just so so important and so, the um, unemployment rate for autism is around 80 I think 90 percent Wow. Somewhere in there. It's really high, and it's so sad because a lot of these kids have a lot of talents and interests that could be connected with something, but with social issues or academic issues, they don't have the support to, or encouragement to try to find those things. Uh, flapping is a big thing with autism. There are a lot of, they're called stereotypies, stereotypies uh, and there are movements that... Uh, are not really functional, but just tend to happen, like hand flapping. Kind of an e expression of their emotion. Yeah. I'm a big flapper. Uh, you do? Yeah. Really? <laughs> you haven't done I'm it once since hands. we've been here. I, I, uh, I think that's because I'm nervous <laughs> yeah? a little bit. Uh, well, also, it's usually when I'm talking about happy things. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there's that anxious anticipation hands, which are different than happy hands. They're both kind of flapping, but um, they they come in different situations. But just talking, they generally don't happen. But uh, if it was something like, you know, there's uh, going to have a barbecue later, I like barbecuing, that would be a flap. I would start flapping probably. When I, my friend came and I saw him for the first time, I hope I didn't embarrass him. I kind of, I, I really flap intensely when I'm happy about seeing something. It looks like I'm trying to take off from the ground. Uh, <laughs> it's an odd, odd quirk. I've uh, seen people do that. I don't think it's odd. that uncommon. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an odd thing. I, I worked one place and this lady said, oh, watch out. They're going to think you're one of them. She didn't know I had Asperger's. And I, I said, oh, I, I, I actually am. I wouldn't have 
said it otherwise, but I didn't want to lie. Mm-hmm. And then she went over my head and told my boss, and they pulled me in for a meeting with all these. I came into a room, and I was surrounded by people who interrogated me about my diagnosis. And um, that was a really that was one of the the situation where gossip. And I lost control of the ability to disclose on my own terms. That was a really unpleasant experience. <laughs> it sounds like it. And people do really, I think, target people with autism and Asperger's. Uh, I think there was someone last week who had, I think, had said she had Asperger's and had been repeatedly sexually abused by different people. And I was told by a therapist a long time ago, he's like, do you notice that when you're out, you kind of look like you're staring off to space. You look vulnerable, basically. And there are these things that you're not aware of, but that to other people signal that you're vulnerable and that you would be an easy target. And I've definitely felt that over the course of my life. And often you're probably alone, too. Mm -hmm. You don't have anyone around you. So it does put you at a greater risk, and people will take advantage of it. I just hope I understand feeling angry, and I think there's a a place for that, but not to let it, to let some other things in too, and hopefully make something productive out of it, and find other kids that feel that way, and do something, you know, fun and that's helpful with them. And I have to tell you, I I imagine a lot of people listening to you share your story today are thinking, "Fuck, I think I have Aspergers." <laughs> there are so many things that you share that I completely relate to, and I know the listeners from from what I've heard them share with me and through the surveys. Um, there's so much uh, that I think we have we have in common. Those yeah. of us that haven't been diagnosed with it, that that we can at least relate to it. It may not be to the extreme that you guys experience it, but um, I just felt myself nodding so many times to yeah. what you were saying. Going, oh my god, I feel I feel that way so often, so often. That's. I think everyone struggles with social situations and trying to understand exactly what's going on. I feel like in the last you know, couple of decades, especially just social demands have really increased and people don't realize how much more we're expected to take on than we would have, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. It's, it's a lot to put on people. We're all feeling the, the pinch a little bit. I think. Did you, uh, do any fears or loves? Yes. Let's do some fears. Yay. You want to start? Sure. Uh, I'm, I worry that I'm a bad hugger. I'm afraid. Uh, a lot of the time when I go in for hugs, I accidentally put my head on people's shoulder. It's just a a reaction. I always feel like that it creeps them out. Uh, I <laughs> hugged you when we met, and I didn't feel that way. I was good. I think I, I, think I kept it vertical. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> um, I think it's sweet, actually, but um, I'm going to be reading the fears of a listener named Deborah, and she says, I fear leaving this earth before I give what I was sent here to give. Uh, I worry about what's going to happen to my cats when I die. And it's. I also fear a little bit that I, I worry more about them when I die than, than me dying it in and of itself. <laughs> uh, here's a little synchronicity that we always seem to have when we do these. <laughs> Deborah's next one is, I fear that no one will ever love me and that I will die alone and no one will find my body for days until it starts to stink and someone calls a landlord to investigate this matter. <laughs> Uh, the one right above the cat one is uh, 
life alert commercials because that's that's a huge fear of mine. There's so many times where I feel, you know, I'll trip or or choke a little bit and think I need to get a life alert. <laughs> uh, Deborah says, I fear that I will never learn to open up and let someone know me, know me, really know me, <clears throat> and love me. Um. I'm worried about uh, that I have some medical condition, like a time bomb taking away, that's uh, going to blindside me again. I definitely have that one. Uh, Deborah says, I fear that I will never have sex, particularly mind-blowing sex, with someone I deeply love. Uh, I hate the... F- I fear the feeling of uh, not having my feet firmly planted, if there's any slipperiness oh, okay. that really freaks me out. The feel, feeling of falling. Uh, Deborah says, I fear that I will never lose enough weight to truly love my body again and won't even try to date for fear that any potential lovers would be repulsed by the sight of my flabby gut. Oh. Give me a, give me a, uh, that's it for Deborah's oh. fears. Do you have any more? <laughs> um, <laughs> give me some highlights. Uh, afraid I'm not good at being anything except a student because that's the majority of what I've been doing for 20 years. Uh, I'm afraid of being found out as having Asperger's. I'm also afraid of no one ever finding out that I have Asperger's. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid that I'll uh, impose my own issues on clients or have difficulty uh, yeah, keeping my own stuff separate. Uh, I fear large groups of people, and more than anything, I fear that someone I work with, will a client will hurt themselves or kill themselves and it'll be my fault mm. I would imagine every single therapist fears that yeah let's uh, let's move to some loves uh, I'll start with Deborah. Um, I love the feel of cotton sheets against my body as I slip into bed at night I love uh, winning the trust of a person that I know doesn't open up easily that's a beautiful one. I don't think we've ever gotten that one. Yeah. That's a beautiful one. I was one. trying to find something original. <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, so many Deborah, good ones. Says, <laughs> Deborah says, I love cut flowers on my dresser. They uh, are the first things I look at in the morning when I can open my eyes and my last view before I close my eyes to sleep. Uh, I love being in a flow state where I'm totally focused and everything melts away except the thing I'm doing. <laughs> mm, that is a great one. Uh, I love the way my cat finds me wherever I am and lies at my feet like he's on a perpetual guard duty. Uh-huh. I love drag queens. Uh, <laughs> was there more to that? No. Okay. They're uh, just fabulous. <laughs> uh, I love uh, women, those with small waists, those with beautiful faces, those with huge breasts that must be corralled <laughs> by expensive support bras, those with tender hearts. Oh. Uh I love uh, being able to embrace and accept flaws in me and other people. That's a great one. Deborah says, I love running on the un- underwater treadmill in my community center early in the morning before work. I love the last uh, little bit of foam and coffee at the bottom that's usually really sweet at the end of the coffee. That's oh, that's a good one. Bit. I just had one of those before we, yeah. uh, we came here. <laughs> Uh, Deborah says, I love composing music on my keyboard for hours at a time when I get so into it that I lose time, forget sadness and rejection, and just let melodies flow through me. That's beautiful. Um, Very similar to yours. Yeah, the flow. (laughs) I love barbecuing. I feel like it's culturally sanctioned pyromania. (laughs) 
the lighter <laughs> fluid. <great>. Go nuts. <laughs> Deborah says, I love Friday evenings because that's when I rush to the iTunes podcast queue to download your oh. show. Oh, that's so sweet. I know this feeling as well. Um, and, uh, uh, I love being so happy that I can't contain the flapping. <laughs> That's a great one. That's it for Deborah's love. Do you, no. do, you, do you have any more you want to give I us before we go out? I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's a great one to go out on some flapping. Yeah. Flap happy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for uh, opening up and, and sharing your uh, your experiences. And oh, thank you so much for having me. It, it was a lot easier than I thought. I was really scared going in, but... Everybody always seems before. to be scared before they come in. And they, afterwards, you're just like, oh, that, I kind of enjoyed that. You make it very easy. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, at least if they didn't enjoy it, they hide it well, and they never tell me. <laughs> thanks, Louise. Thank you. Many thanks to uh, to Louise. I, I don't know about you guys, but I learned a lot about... Uh, Asperger's and the autism spectrum, and um, I don't know. There's nothing like hearing somebody's uh, story and the feelings that they experience remind you of the feelings that you've had, but their circumstances are different, and it just reinforces to me how unalone we really all are, how connected we all really are, because our internal experience is so, so similar. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to uh, support the show. You can support it financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com. Uh, that's also, mentalpod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And uh, you can go there to the website and make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, the recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. It may not be a lot to you guys, but it adds up and it helps support the show. And you monthly donors... Uh, Say it every time, you mean the world to me, and it really is the financial foundation that I'm starting to build this show on. Um, so I really, really appreciate it. Nothing makes me happier than seeing that somebody has signed up to become a new monthly donor. Um, and I want to thank those of you that, um, like Manny, that patrol the forum, keep the spammers out, and especially those of you that are transcribing episodes. It takes like a full day for someone to transcribe an episode, and... Um, Thank you, the volunteers that have done it and are currently working on episodes. Uh, that that means a lot to me. And that helps bring more people to the show, too, because um, when printed... I'm just going to shut up. I was going to start to get technical, but when words get out there on the Internet, sometimes it helps people find stuff. What do I want to do right now? I think I'm just going to jump into the, the surveys. Oh, there was... Um, I was going to say there's a couple of other ways you can support the show. You can support it also financially by going, uh, shopping through our Amazon search portal. It's on our homepage, um, right-hand side, about halfway down. And you can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice and giving us a good rating and by spreading the word through social media. Um, I think people are starting to talk about uh, the podcast on Reddit and um, that... Uh, that makes me happy. All right. To the surveys. Oh, and go take the surveys, especially the happy moment surveys. Um, I just, I love when somebody is able to articulate a, a really beautiful happy moment on, on that one. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself J.S. She's straight in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. 
was the victim of sexual abuse but never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I frequently masturbate and fantasize about fictional incest relationships or situations similar to my molestation as a child by my brother. The fantasies are all uh, are with all types of incest, father to daughter, brother and sister, uncle to niece, and so on. Deepest, darkest secrets. My brother molested me from the ages of 6 to 16. He loved my feet and would usually try to lick them in my sleep. It went from that to him trying to undress me while I tried to not wake up. I was I usually was able to wake up and make a quick move out of bed. I slept on the floor of my parents' room for years. I slept with the lights on and tried to lock my door. I told my father about it when I was very young when it started and he did not believe me. I stopped telling my family after that and hid it. Oh, that breaks my heart. That just breaks my heart. When people go to their fucking caregiver and their caregiver calls them a liar oh my god the one-two punch um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you having a secret relationship with a family member usually i am most attracted to things like erotica where i can read stories where a male character uh, will seduce a family member or will um this print is kind of hard to read or will uh find the girl in her sleep and will start molesting them up to having intercourse. The sex is consensual when it gets to that point. I'm attracted to the taboo nature of it and having s- sexual decision-making somewhat made for you. Would you ever consider telling a partner or a close friend? No. My partner knows of my molestation, and I am worried that if I tell him, he would be instantly turned off. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I usually feel disgusting and ashamed. I hate myself after looking up porn or erotica on incest. I feel like I wanted the sexual abuse when I was younger, like I wished it went further into a real sexual relationship. It's disgusting. I'm disgusting. Um, no, it's not, and no, you're not. Um, let me just read your words back to you. Uh, I would usually... I was able to wake up and make a quick move out of bed. I slept on the floor of my parents' room for years. I slept with the lights on and tried to lock my door. I told my father about it. Those are not things that somebody does who is enjoying that. And I'm going to tell you what therapists have told me is your wires get crossed. When somebody takes advantage of you sexually at a young age, objectifies you, sexualizes you, wires get crossed. And then you blame yourself for the wires being crossed and it's time that you stopped blaming yourself and that is so common for people to blame themselves for that and i know i read a lot of these on there but i'm 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 just i would love to get to the point where the majority of people that write in about that says yeah i have these thoughts but they don't bother me anymore because i know this is my body's way of processing the trauma that happened to me. All right. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Morrissey Wannabe. He's straight in his 30s. And what do you like or dislike about your body? I'm shortish, hairy, and stocky, but I've always been more bookish and arty. I feel like I should have been born to British parents so I could be tall, pale, and gaunt. 
This is also from the body shame survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Raymond. He's 16. He's bisexual. He writes, I hate the stretch marks on my shoulders, back, stomach, chest, and arms. They won't budge no matter how much oil I put on them. I also hate my acne, which is much better due to medication, but still not too great. Well, dude, I don't know anybody that was 16 that wasn't fretting about their acne. And I had acne probably till I was in my mid-20s and uh, always hated it. Always hated it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself M. She's straight. She's 18. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about how much easier it would be to just die. It would make the hurt go away. But that makes me weak, right? No, it doesn't. Uh, that's where the shame comes in. I feel like I'm living a double life. I have to pretend to be happy and normal when I know I'm not. Deepest, darkest secrets. My for- former stepfather molested me over a period of four years. It escalated from touches to penetration. I've never told anyone. He was also very physically abusive, sometimes to my siblings and I, but na- mainly towards my mother. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't have any sexual fantasies. I can't even hug someone without my skin crawling. I have a huge problem with touch. I'm basically ruined. Um, my first thought is, no, you're not ruined. You're, you're, you've been injured, but we can heal. We can absolutely heal. Is it fast and simple and painless? No, it's not. It's long, it's complicated, and it's often painful. But on the other side of it, um, it's like a forced gym membership. Uh, We come out the other side with some great tools and a stronger soul and more compassion for other people. And that's all there for you if you want to deal with it. And and I think it's good that that you can recognize that your skin crawls when someone hugs you because that's, listen to your body. Your body is telling you how traumatic this was and wishing for the hurt to go away, as you said. Um, it's your body's way of telling you, hey, let's, let's, let's deal with this. This is inside, but it's not who you are. It's just something that happened to you. This is from the Shame and Secret survey uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Cole He's bisexual, he's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I sometimes imagine I have contracted a fatal disease and I will be dead in just a few years and I don't feel afraid. It feels like a fantasy of hope from being overwhelmed and alone. I've definitely had that one. It's like I want somebody to make the decision for me. I don't want to kill myself, but uh, yeah. Deepest, darkest secrets, countless one-night stands that I find, found through Grinder or somewhere else online, giving hand jobs and oral to strangers, one in a bathroom and one in a gym sauna. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Public sex, being completely passive and still, uh, being completely passive and still while someone masturbates me in public. Um, could be related to my first boyfriend who pressured me into masturbating him on a school bus at age 15 as my first sexual experience. Also, I get turned on by rape porn, but I can't picture myself in either role. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? No. Both seem too shameful, and I worry they might see me as polluted, especially given my past of acting out sexually. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Deep shame. 
Feelings that I won't be able to form any sort of relationship organically without giving away my body for sex. Um, I would not. I would not give up hope. I think you're you're being very cynical about of your future, especially especially because you're 20 years old. But that's that's the kind of stuff that's got to be worked through, and you know, being able to maybe link it to that that first experience, I think. Um, shows a good openness on your part that you're you're willing to say hey maybe i wasn't born quote unquote dirty you know maybe this is something that happened to me and that's my body's way of processing it i have this tremendous fear right now that i am just a broken fucking record and i'm losing listeners by the second um but it feels good to say that it feels good um I guess I'm in a lot of fear. I'm in a lot of fear that I'm not doing this right, that I'm mishandling the podcast, that I'm a pervert because I'm reading this stuff. Um, but it feels good to say that. I had a really good talk with a... Um, a therapist. It was an episode that I'll probably be airing shortly in the next couple of weeks. And I talked about this shame and self-doubt that comes up when I talk about um, sexual abuse. Um, because part of me feels like, I don't know, like I'm a, like I'm dirty for, I don't know if dirty is the right word, that sounds too dramatic, but I'm like, um, like a creepy voyeur. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm, that I'm not, but there's a fear in there that I am, and I'm just using reading these as a way to excite myself. Mm. Moving on. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Strangers on a Train. She's straight. She's in her 50s. She was raised in a pretty dis dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Being felt up by males and my family from about 10 on. Uncles, brothers-in-law, and in one case, a nephew my age. Comments and violations of privacy by being spied on, trapped. An uncle was a pedophile, and I was always told to never be alone with him. I was an adult before learning he had abused my two older sisters, tried to rape my brothers, uh, tried to rape my brother's bride and my mom's brother. Um, why was he allowed to visit? Deepest, darkest thoughts. My partner contemplated suicide a few, completed suicide a few months ago. I feel I caused it, and there are days I consider doing the same. He could be abusive and explosive when he was... Uh, and was actually a high risk for murder-suicide per the state's attorney. So I guess I was lucky. Everyone tells me, but I just feel pain, not luck. I, I don't know any person who had a loved one that took their life that didn't, at some point, mistakenly blame themselves. But nobody's suicide is another person's fault. Deepest, darkest secrets. My partner had orgy 
or multiple partner fantasies. I never got that desire, but I did go with him to sex clubs where we never swapped but did perform with others looking on. I am shy, but he was so thrilled and excited by this. It seems um, and it seemed and seems harmless because I told him before we went my limits, uh, which he hoped to change, I know, but sometimes I can could set limits, but which most people would judge as weird and could make lurid, lurid gossip. His mother used to threaten to castrate him, so I think it was a validation thing for him to have sex in front of others. Sometimes he got frustrated with my shyness, but sometimes I admit it felt liberating to be so not me and be admired and stroked by strangers and other times it felt exploitive. I'm fairly attractive for my age and I know he used me to get attention and such. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Trains turn me on and I always had fantasies about being seduced on a train like those old fashioned European trains with chambers going through tunnels the swaying. Sometimes it was meeting a stranger on a train like in those old Hitchcock films. Being anonymous, wild, while all the other passengers are oblivious with their papers or now iPads uh, to life going on around them. My partner would enjoy dress-up fantasies. Naughty schoolgirl sent to the principal, Roman sex slaves, medieval maids. We had costumes too, but also hide-and-go-seek in total nudity and sometimes in the backyard. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Yes, I have. It's fun to share. Do they generate any particular feelings? No, they were fun. Boy, that is refreshing. That is so refreshing to see somebody that um, was able to indulge in that role-playing and stuff like that and not feel shame about that. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? I know if you met, you have mentioned support groups and I know after my partner's suicide, that was one thing that has saved me so far. What about a podcast talking to several members of a group for one podcast so those unfamiliar with the concept see how it plays out, um, the give and the take? That is a good idea. The closest I've come to that is I recorded something when I was in Portland with a group of listeners, and I haven't aired that yet. Um, it's longer than one, ep one episode, and I know it's going to require some editing, so I think I've been kind of putting that off. Um, and then this last one that I want to read is from let's see actually it's the second to last one this is from the forum and this is filled out by the woman uh, her name is Fairlight and she writes uh, it's funny I've tried to join forums in the past and they've never really worked out for me Mostly the latest diet craze I'm on and hoping to get online support, but it has never seemed to work. As I read over some of your posts and replies, she's talking to everybody on the forum, not me specifically, I'm so impressed with how genuine you are with each other. I feel like this is a home I've been looking for a while now. A little about me. I'm a married 42-year-old mom of a 12-year-old. When I was pregnant with my daughter, I started having a lot of insomnia, depression, and anxiety. It got worse after I had her, and soon I began to hallucinate and became very paranoid everyone was out to hurt my daughter. I also thought the men we ran into were going to molest her. I dealt with this on my own for three months and was then hospitalized. Since we didn't have insurance, I went to a, a county medical. This place sucked beyond belief, but that's a story for another time. 
I was put on medication for depression and eight months later hallucinating again and leaving the house in the middle of the night, so hospitalized again. Thank God now we had insurance and it was quite the swanky joint. This time I was diagnosed with bipolar. I was prescribed Depakote and have stayed on it pretty much for the last 12 years. My doctors have dabbled with some other meds with me, but that always ends in disaster, so I stay on Depakote. Things aren't perfect. I still have ups and downs. I usually don't share this with my doctor as he just wants to change meds and I find getting back to a healthy diet, exercise regimen, sleep, yoga, and meditation, and regular massages does the trick. If I would only stick to these, but I do my best. I hope I haven't bored you all with too many details, but I wanted to share a bit of my backstory. My biggest issue now is my daughter is showing symptoms of depression and highs and lows. Of course, she's also at the age that her hormones are raging, so I don't know if it's normal for her age or not. It scares me, though. I don't want her to go through what I've been going through and feel guilty about passing on this disorder to her. Can anyone relate to this? We are working on finding her a therapist. I don't want her to. I don't want to put her uh, right on meds, though. That would be a last resort. Thanks for reading. And um, you know, I was really moved by by her post um, because I, you know, not, on top of her own depression, now she has to worry about passing that on to her child. And I know there's a lot of parents that that feel that way as well. And the one thing I, I just want to remind people that have kids or loved ones who are suffering is the the one way that you can never go wrong is to remind those people that you love them and you're rooting for them. Even if even if it's somebody that you have to cut contact with because they're not dealing with their mental illness and they're not willing to get help, you can still remind them that you love them, but that you have to protect yourself. Um, I was at a barbecue a couple of weeks ago and my depression just came rolling in. And I, you know, people would ask me, hey, how you doing? You know, I just had that smile on my face like everything's okay. And I didn't feel like anybody at this barbecue, I wasn't really that close to anybody at the barbecue. And I didn't feel like I could honestly tell anybody what was really going on. So I said, oh, I'm doing fine. But, you know, what I really wanted to do, if, if that had been a barbecue with my friends from my support group, I would have said, I'm not doing well. Can I lay my head in your lap? And they would have let me. And I would have felt instantly better. And I think we just have to find those people in our lives. And for me and a lot of people in the forum, that's that lap that we can lay our heads in. So if you haven't gone to the forum yet and joined it and let people get to know you, do it. Because we don't think you're weird. We don't think you're being overly dramatic because many of us have lived what you're living or have lived. And there's nothing like the comfort of somebody that knows your your experience. Finally, I'm going to take it out with, this is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Wellington. And uh, his happy moment, I've always enjoyed the warm feeling of shelter, like being in a nice house during a storm or being comfortable under a warm blanket. I was camping with some friends last year and found myself alone reading Game of Thrones in the tent when it eventually began to rain. I genuinely believe The pitter-patter of rain against shelter is my favorite sound, and it's only amplified when you're in a tent. To have that feeling of being in a nice, modest, dry area that is protecting you from getting wet felt like achieving nirvana to me. If I could feel that way I did at that moment for the rest of my life, then I would be a happy man. Thank you for that, Wellington, and I love that feeling too. That one really, really touched a nerve with me. I, I love 
being safe and warm and cozy when the when the weather is is bad outside um so thank you guys for supporting the show and um being here for me when i need you and um opening up your lives to me and let me get to know you and you getting to know me that's a really nice feeling i appreciate it and if you're out there and you're struggling I hope this, these last two hours have reminded you that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.